Hello, Brexit Britain. Good evening. Welcome to Democalypse Part 2. Maniacs Live. And if I can ever untangle myself from this chair, it's very difficult to escape from things sometimes. Uh, I will introduce myself and the panel. My name's Andrew Harrison. I produce the show. Um, thank you for supporting it and coming to see it. And uh, how many people came here for part one? Show of hands. Oh, there go all the jokes. <laughs> delete, 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 delete. Okay, we're going to have to push it, kids. Um, well, welcome again to uh, Underground in the Leicester Square Theatre, where you can share a joke and get to know the people who will be your best friends in the internment camps to be opened <laughs> in 2021. Or 2038, if they bring back Chris Grayling to Mastermind Project. Um, <laughs> Do not waste this time, Donald Tusk told us in April, and with 38 days left until supposed Brexit Day, I'm sure you'll agree we have not wasted this time if you change Prime Ministers without an election, suspended Parliament, cut our Brussels negotiating team down to four, and spent £100 million advertising preparations for something that still might not happen, including spending it on podcasts. Yeah, well, we sent in non-papers. What? We sent in non-papers. Non-papers? Yes, don't forget that. Oh, right, yes, big piles. sent in a non-paper. When you take, it's like you take a pile of papers off the photocopier and you put your thing on top, and you go, look at all the work I did. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, so the entire process has been the political equivalent to when you've got a massive deadline, and you decide it's a good time to start reorganizing, reorganizing your CDs by the color of the spine. Anyway, we have a two-Ronnie-style packed program tonight. Um, let's say hello to the panel. He's an actor, cook, trained sailor political essayist and singer, who's appearing in Mozart's Seraglio. Did I say it right? With the English touring opera next month. He's playing the Turkish Pasha, who is the bad guy, apparently. And he's the it's Twitter legend. Joke. Yes, spoilers. And he's the Twitter legend known as Sturdy Alex. It's Alex Andreo. They love you. Hello, Alex. Welcome to the show. So, Seraglio, stop it. It's about the flowers. Seraglio is about the struggle to win freedom from a despotic and rapacious European captain. Or you, the Ottoman Mike Michel Barnier, in the Seraglio. I, I guess so, but, but it turns out I need them more than they need me. <laughs> um, if we hadn't voted leave, would Pasha Salim and all his Turkish mates have been able to come over here, like it said on Nigel Farage's poster, singing arias on the Eurostar? Um, well, I, I mean, if the entire population of Turkey can travel in a big red arrow, I don't see why, <laughs> I don't see why the Pasha cannot travel forward in time. There you go. So, yeah. Uh, we're told that Britain's going to be living uh, the EU deal or no deal, no ifs or buts on Halloween, Yay. 31st of October. Now, we have this awful American tradition now of dressing as a sexy version of your biggest fear. <laughs> Will you be dressing as sexy, enormous lorry delays on the M20? <laughs> Um, uh, sexy backstop? No, quite a, quite a lot of room for misunderstanding there. Um, um, a sexy transitional period, that's a nice non-binary non um, option. Very, very woke. Um, also with us is the editor of LSE Brexit Blogs and, and another of our regulars. So can I dress oh. as Sexy Canada? Sexy Canada? Well, because then all I would need is a flannel shirt and some blackface. <laughs> too soon, too soon, too soon, too soon. I've lost them. Very, very, very too soon. Anyway, viewers, the editor of LSE Brexit Blogs, another of our regulars, her famous fish rant on Romaniacs, 
has gone down in legend as the where mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore of the Brexit era. It's Ros Taylor. Hi Ros, welcome to the show. If we do leave on Halloween, it is going to ruin Halloween forever, isn't it? Trick or treat, no, all the sweets are in the lorry somewhere. <laughs> are your kids the right age for this? Uh, yeah, completely. They're, they're 10 and 7, so they, they love Halloween. But it's, it's, it seems to me that it's actually 31st of October, you know, so 1st of November is when it, get, it starts kicking in. So 31st of October is going to be, you know, let's go mad. All the sweets, all the time. And, you know, with, um, they're also obsessed with pumpkins. Every year they have to carve a pumpkin. And there are two kinds of pumpkins you find out in this. Okay. There, there, there's something called a carving pumpkin, which is full of really shit orange strands and crap <laughs> that no one want to eat. This. And there's, there's a proper pumpkin. And a smashing pumpkin, one might say. Yeah, yeah, smashing pumpkin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 90s. Anyway. And, yeah, yeah, well, anyway. Well, the, um, the fact is that the shops are full of these shit carving pumpkins. And as I've explained to the kids already, they're going to be eating that pumpkin <laughs> and they're going to be eating all the rubbish inside it for the rest of the month because that's what we're going to be eating. Shit pumpkins. That's all they'll be left. Exactly. Put that on your yeah. poster, on your bus, in fact. Um, we heard from Joe Moore on the podcast last week, Joe Moore and QC, Doughty Legal Campaigner. Uh, he set up the day-by-day -day kind of uh, timetable. Even if Johnson gets his imaginary deal, there's like 12 working days and it requires a minimum of 30 evening. You don't scrutinise it at all. Mm. Is there anybody out there who believes this actual this imaginary unicorn deal is possible? Not a unicorn deal, but I think a deal is possible. Basically, um, it's my belief that no prime minister who put forward no deal would survive more than a week, 10 days. Because we need them. Yeah, it'd be... Because <laughs> <laughs> we need them, yeah. Where would you start with Johnson? Would you start with toes? Or... <laughs> yeah, anyway. Carving like so, a pumpkin. So, for that reason, Johnson knows that he cannot really go for no deal if he wants to save himself. And that's why I think he will, at the last minute, having failed to get a deal from, uh, from, from uh, Europe at the summit, he will say, right, you've got one last chance. You could have May's old deal. It's not ideal, but at least they'll get us, uh, get us out of the EU. And he'll shove it through Parliament and hope that enough Labour MPs vote for it and hope that all the people like Rory Stewart who have left, you know, will obviously vote for it because they were happy with it before. And he, that, that's what he'll try to do just to save his skin. That, that's my prediction, and it might be entirely wrong because who the knows what's going to happen. But <laughs> I, I fear that, um, yeah. Okay, well, you've made it in front of witnesses now, so you, yeah. you'll be held to this. Our special guest this evening has travelled a path that will be familiar to all of us. Once he was an award-winning, beloved writer and actor who portrayed characters as diverse as the League of Gentlemen's ageing pop star Les McQueen and Royston Vasey butcher Hilary Briss. He was Sherlock Holmes's brother Mycroft and Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart's granddad. He brought Sherlock Holmes and the Ice Warriors back. Well, then Brexit took hold, and like the rest of us, he reduced to a life of terrified and bitter tweeting. <laughs> Amongst his recent bomb mowers has been describing Reese Mogg as a hateful column of dust. <laughs> it is one of our best and most enjoyable guests on the podcast. Please give a warm welcome to the great Mark Aters. Hello, <laughs> Mark. Hello. Brexit, it's a shit business, isn't it? <laughs> as let. Is Les now standing as a Brexit party candidate for Royston? Because they've got Jay Aston. Well, there's a bit, there's a new sort of tradition, isn't there? It's Jay Aston from Books Fizz, or one of the Books Fizzes. Uh, and David Van Day from Dollar, or one of the Dollars. Yes. Yeah. Because there's about nine different factions now. Yeah. But I don't think, no, I don't think Les is a, a lever. 
uh, or a, or a um, Brexit Party candidate. He's too he's too good natured. Yeah. Um, also, he's seen he's felt pain. He's seen misery, hasn't he? Only pain. <laughs> but I, I I I'm really intrigued by this sort of uh, soft light entertainment core. To some, there's some really bad people out there for whom we all uh, lost our hearts in the in the 70s and 80s. People, some people are really letting us down from sitcoms. It's like it's like Sue Pollard for one. Yeah, it's like there the, are like pictures the, of Sue Pollard having dinner with Aaron Banks. I mean, hi, <laughs> do you what? It's like the seaside special punch. It's it? horrible. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, it's the way we sort of all thought it would be. You know, it's actually like this kind of, you know, sort of uh, it's the, sort of Goebbels. Uh, or Goebbels' list somewhere was was to recruit all the sort of light entertainers and uh, march them into into rank and file. There, it's, it's quite sinister. Very strictly done. Yeah. Like very very. Does strictly. anybody remember what? There's a fantastic Angus Wilson novel called The Old Men at the Zoo, and uh, it was it was made by the BBC in the in the mid '80s. It's about a, a fascist putsch in Britain, and the the guy who leads it is a works at London Zoo, and. It's very clever. There's a sort of an A-bomb goes off, I think, and then there's a sort of fascist coup. And the, the um, I've been thinking about it a lot, and uh, <laughs> the, um, the symbol of the resistance is the yeti, because in the, in the story they've actually found one and stuffed it, and it becomes the symbol. I'd love to see it again. I'll just sort of throw that in. But uh, it's... Uh, we'll be crowdfunding this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's time this one to go. Netflix can make it. We were yes, about like it. the Dark Crystal. Like yes. the Dark Crystal. Yeah. Uh, Mark, you said on the podcast that Royston Basie was kind of meant as a satire, but turned out to be a prediction. This is local Britain. There's nothing here for you. When you look back on your... I mean, we're even further down the, the dark road. Now, when you look back on your League of Gentlemen work, does it... Do you kind of get the creeps? Are you receiving psychic vibrations from the future? <laughs> no, I mean, the trouble is, you see, with anything... We, we, you know, we, were, we, were, we were sort of harvesting our collective childhoods and upbringings, and, and um, we did the... We did three new specials a couple of years ago, and then we did a tour last year. And uh, and I mean this most sincerely, it's Huey Green. <laughs> but um, going around the country again, uh, 15 years, I think, since the last tour, um, it was very striking why this has happened. Because there are there are genuinely huge swathes of this country which have been totally forgotten. I mean, even more than they were before. And, you know... It was it was a very familiar sight to see whole st high streets boarded up, and and you can I mean there's just an absolute kind of powerlessness and and people saw their chance I think to finally make off think they were making some kind of difference and that's what's you know led to it all. I don't I, I don't want to buy into the narrative that it's just a great big unwashed mass of, of idiots who have voted for this people who have been manipulated lied to. But there are also there's people with genuine grievances who want to sort of yell into the night, you know, what about me? Mm. So it's kind of, um, you know, it wasn't, Royston Vasey wasn't a sort of prediction of that. We were, and there's a lot to satirise <laughs> still. But I think that there's a lot of, you know, genuine pain and, and anguish out there and, and people who just feel completely left behind. In a very old-fashioned way, I think we have become two nations again, Disraeli would say. And there is a proper there is a proper underclass developing in this country, which we, we all thought we'd seen uh, the last stop, and it's, it's it's really terrifying. Funnily enough, we'll be returning to that jolly subject later in the <laughs> in, in the show. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, Brexit's amongst its other miserable effects, seems to have kind of paralysed the creative community. There's not a lot of Brexit music, not a lot of 
Brexit comedy. But what there is, is your old Doctor Who comrade, Russell C. Davis, and years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think of it? How do you think that's going to be seen as a document of now? Well, it's interesting because you used that clip of me doing the bit from Quatermass yes. there, uh, from 1979, which genuinely looks like a prediction. Uh, imagine <laughs> Neil could see round corners. He knew what was coming. Uh, and uh, well, Russell's uh, years and years, I, I think that the... You know, it looks optimistic in some respects, especially the, the way that Vivian Rook's character actually takes that long to get where she does, whereas Farage is just leaping over <laughs> all hurdles. So, I mean, the, the problem, obviously, you know, it's speculative sci-fi and, and uh, a dystopian idea of what's going to happen, but so much of it is chiming with what's happening. And then the lovely thing is, you know, uh, there are also kind of wonderful sort of wild pot shots and things because that's what sci-fi is about you know it's a big it's a big vehicle that can cope with lots of ideas so there's fantastic uh notions of what's going to come as well as very probable predictions i suppose of, of the terrible dark path we're all falling down <laughs> <laughs> the reviews for this show are going to be never go to a romania <laughs> you're gonna hang yourself we should have done this at the royal court we should have lavish searing honesty five stars so <laughs> 31st of October is bearing down on us and we'll be doing Duck Apple without actual apples for Halloween. Tonight on the show we're going to look at whether Brexit experience, what the Brexit experience in terms of British identity. Is there even a British identity once more? Touched on it in the first show, we'll get a different take on it now. Um, and are we faced with voters who just love chaos for its own sake? It's not all downers. As we enter the end game, we're going to select our heroes of the Brexit campaign. Who pulled off wonderful things in the name of good sense and international cooperation? And we're going to be playing more rounds of that game that's been doing the rounds on social media where the panellists get a famous lineup of names and they have to say who'd be leave, who'd be remain, and who would be a freeman of the land who does not recognise the law at all. <laughs> but first, something that'll be familiar to all listeners on the podcast, our roundup of the Brexit latest, in a section we like to call, oh God, what now? <laughs> Supreme Court prorogation, there's going to be a judgment tomorrow at half past ten. Um, Roz, it is astounding that we could even be in this position where whatever the judgment is tomorrow, a court has found that the Prime Minister has lied to the monarch, the Prime Minister has distorted the process of prorogation. The fact that it's happened at all means it could be tried again in another form. Where does it leave us, this particular episode, prorogation? Well, basically the exciting thing about tomorrow, exciting for me anyway, or terrifying as well, is that you talk about the Constitution and what the Constitution will say, you know, and what, what, what change it will make, a difference it will make to the Constitution. And actually, um, the Constitution will be remade tomorrow because the Constitution, as it's in unwritten form in, in Britain, is all about precedent and it's all about judgments that have already been made. So the, the, uh, the, the terrifying, exciting thing is that tomorrow we're going to find out a bit more about our constitution and whether it allows this stuff or not, or whether whether it's totally unacceptable. And the fact that we really don't know which way they're going to go is, to my mind, pretty terrifying and a sign of the kind of the kind of um, mess that we've let ourselves get into. Yeah, I mean, if if as we're told, if the judgment goes in the government's direction, it means Parliament can literally prorogue at any time mm-hmm. a sitting government requires. They can kind of. On prorogue when they want some legislation and then re-prorogue and kind of in, they, out. They apparently, technically, would only need Parliament for two weeks a year. Wow. <laughs> for defence spending and the budget. That's it. Then where, where does the governing happen? 
I seem to remember we cut off a king's head for such as this. <laughs> we did, didn't we? It was exciting. But, but we wouldn't, would we want to be in that world again? I, I, I don't know. I mean, Alex, is this a, you know, things like, you know, the sort of almost kind of gratuitous assaults on the existing institutions? Is it part of a wider project to kind of elevate the will of the people over the institutions, over the judiciary, over the legislature and so forth? Well, I mean, in a previous life, I read law, um, so I've kept a relatively keen eye um, on it as a, a, a former lawyer layman now. Um, and if you strip away all the fripperies, their side's basic case is this. It's not up to Parliament to scrutinise the executive's decision, and it's not up to courts to scrutinise the executive's decisions. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of running out of branches of government. Because <laughs> there's only the three, really. So... You're sort um, of down to the waterboard now, aren't yeah, you? So, so it's pretty shitting, terrifying stuff, this idea that we have an executive that's saying, well, Parliament can tell me what to do, and the courts can't tell me what to do, because they're somehow reaching back across an election in which they failed to win a majority, to draw their mandate directly from a relatively vague binary poll. Um, so, yeah, that's bad times. But we may strongly dislike it, but we have to accept that there are hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people out there for whom this is their idea of democracy. The first time they thought about democracy was the referendum. They think it's the purest and most... Uh, you know, whole form of democracy that there is. <clears throat> Has this been a project in kind of basically moving the dial on what people think democracy is, to shift it so they believe it's something that it is? No, look, it's fairly commonplace. I mean, you know, autocrats have a history of suggesting they're drawing their mandate directly from the people. This is the completely common way in which they bypass the things that are there to balance their power. It, it, I mean, it couldn't be more textbook if you tried. You know, it reminds me of a, there's a, a Battleland Entertainment, all I know about. Uh, that there's a long history of uh, ITV, particularly, used to copy BBC formats, you know, <laughs> right, right up to dance, um, Dancing on Ice, you know. It's just such a, or you think, oh, fuck off. <laughs> it's, you can't get strictly seen. Oh, it's just the same. And they, there was a long, it's a long history that all, all people used to defect to ITV. This is like our shitty, half-assed British version of what's going on around the rest of the world. Oh. So it's, it's obviously working for Trump. It's working in Brazil. It's working in Hungary. So it's just a very, very ITV version. <laughs> it's a format <laughs> of, of, of despotism. It's a form, yeah. So it's basically, it's the end of all despotism. We've just bought the format. They bought the format. And, and they put Adam Deck in front of it. Front of it. And it's like, hello, everybody. It's Sue Pollard and Jay Aston. Yes. Or on ice. a human face. On ice, yes. That would save it. Right. Remember, we, have a, we haven't even elected the despot. I mean, you yeah. know, he's elected by, uh, how many is it? 
You just said we chopped a king's head off. It, it, it wasn't far off, you know, with scuffles in the lobbies of the, of the House of Commons and so forth, yeah. um, preceded by a series of defeats for, for Boris Johnson. How do you think six-time loser proven lie to the sovereign and please leave my town recipient Boris Johnson is doing <laughs> so far? <laughs> what, is six out of ten? what genuinely frightens me is that the baddies uh, just keep winning. And I, 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 would, I'm so, I can't tell you, I'm a cockeyed optimist. I could write songs for Roger and Hammerstein, and I'm so fucking depressed and pessimistic about it all. I just have a terrible feeling they're going to get away with it big time. I have I, I feel it in my water. It's just, he just does. He's such a fucking like, mendacious pile of shit. And he just... <laughs> he, just he just glides through life winging every single aspect of his life from his haircuts downwards for those all his life what he's been massively found out and i don't think it's going to make a blind bit of difference i think by the time they get in front of the public he'll walk it i think they'll walk an election if he gets i do i just i just can't i wish i could believe there was some sort of fantastic thing going to happen but i just don't he's he's always got away with it look at cameron for god's sake cameron should be in prison and he's in a nice shed writing his memoirs and then popping up just, just to say, just to sell his book. It's disgraceful, but everything's disgraceful. Everything is disgraceful. But think of it this way. Boris Johnson only wants one thing, and that's to be liked. Sit on the big chair and be liked. And whenever he steps into the general, in front of the general public right now, they say, please leave my town. They say, what are you doing in this hospital where my sick daughter is? And he lies to them. He is, he is berated in markets up and down the country. His USP was supposed to be the common touch, people love me. And the people seem to really not love him. But that's what you know, all he'll do is prorogue people. <laughs> that's what he's doing. I mean, that, that's what, it's brilliant. It's like he, he, he has a, like four days in Parliament and he falls apart. So Parliament stops. And then what they'll, they'll, they'll sort of Kremlinize him. He just won't be wheeled out in front of people. They'll, they'll, they'll get other people. They'll, they'll do the election campaign with all the other monsters around him because he's, it's not working. But, okay, it's a point of view, but his whole thing is supposed to be, I am the Heineken politician. The, the, the incandescent power of my charisma is what will take this moribund, rotting corpse of a party over the line. And it seems to be, I don't know, Ros, you're, you're I cling to the idea that Boris Johnson created Brexit, basically, with his lies in Brussels that we had about before. He, he's basically been responsible for it, and in the last 20 years or so have been Boris Johnson gradually using Brexit to obtain power. And therefore, logically, this is a tragedy, and he's going to be destroyed by Brexit, because it has to be that. That's how, what I tell myself. Um, on, at the dark, in the darkest moments of my soul, that, that is what I tell myself, that he is going to, Brexit will destroy him, as it has destroyed every previous Tory leader who has had problems with Europe. Uh, but it will particularly destroy him because he sees power because of it and through it. 
And yeah, that's my hope. That's my, it's also my hope. I just hope it doesn't destroy us at the same time, which is possible. Yeah, well, obviously it will destroy us, but I now feel that that is inevitable. And I do, I, <laughs> and, paying. Yes. and if it destroys Boris Johnson at the same time, at least there will be some consolation um, to be had. Speaking of tragedies, uh, it's Labour Conference Week. Uh, <laughs> had a great start. Lovely segue. Segue. We had a fantastic start with a, a, a failed drive-by hit on Tom Watson. Uh, he, Corbyn aide Andrew Fisher, quitting over lack of professionalism, competence and human decency in the leader's inner circle. And today, the party has backed Jeremy's uh, kind of holographic Brexit uh, mystery. Um, firstly, Ros, explain exactly what happened today, because it seemed to be the terracotta army was marched out, wasn't it, to back Jeremy? Yeah, well, uh, essentially there were people trying to persuade uh, Jeremy Corbyn that uh, he wanted to back Remain in some more, some, some, some more significant way. Some less Corbyn way. Some less Corbyn way. <laughs> but in my view, unsurprisingly, um, Jeremy Corbyn said he didn't want to do that and conference decided that the important thing was to back Jeremy Corbyn no matter what he said and so they did. So we're now in a situation where the, it's been reaffirmed the kind of the, the construction of strike a new deal uh, and then remain aloof from it during the campaign. Do we think, Alex, do we think that's, is it getting any clearer to general public? No. Um... <laughs> But I don't have a huge problem with it, I have to say. I, I mean, I don't think, to audible ooze, I don't think um, it's, a, it's a dishonest or intellectually problematic position for him to hold, to say we want to give people a vote and for us to give people a meaningful vote, it means they must be choosing between two viable options. So we have to go get you the second viable option because it ain't no deal. Um, I, I think that's intellectually honest. It'll be a fucking hoot to sell on the, on the doorstep. <laughs> Let me tell you. Um, um, I, I, I would love to follow a Labour MP around trying to sell that one. Um, but I don't have a problem with it. And ultimately, I think it's irrelevant. And the reason it's irrelevant, because uh, the, the next general election will come down to how smart the opposition parties are at collaborating with each other. And actually, when you have a Labour, Liberal Democrat um, marginal, it's quite good to have them with a differentiated position, and you can take a, a genuine view as to whether I want a second referendum or whether I just want to revoke Article 50. And if it's a Tory Labour marginal, or if it's a Tory Liberal Democrat marginal, it's still clear which party you need to go for. So it's only in very, very few seats where the, where there are three-way marginals and seats like that where it becomes a murkier picture. In the vast majority of seats that are either a marginal between the Tories and one of the other two parties or between the two parties, it's perfectly clear to me who I'd be voting for. It's a no-brainer. So I'm okay with that. So... Two part two where uh, life is be surprisingly be okay with Jennifer. Don't be afraid, the Liberal Democrat next to you is not gonna hit you. <laughs> it's very it's very dark out there. Mark, 
Um, the world of Brexit is a world of Groundhog Days. The same things happen over and over again. And within them is this, is the Jeremy Corbyn Groundhog Day, which seems to go on and on. And the, the same things happen over and over. From the point of view of being pro-Remain, do we even want Jeremy Corbyn kind of involved at that level? Or was it like, do we really just not need another I'm present but not involved like we had last time? I, don't, I mean, I don't think Labour can possibly uh, progress any further with him. And I'm talking of, of the Kremlin. I mean, he is like Brezhnev now, isn't he? I mean, they just put Barry, uh, Barry what's his name? Barry, Barry Gardner out. You never see, you see him very occasionally and he sort of waves a tentacle. <laughs> and then he's, he's wheeled back in, you know? On the radio, Barry Gardner is, sounds exactly like Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, next time he's on, listen to it without your mind. No, that would work. It's impossible yeah. not to. I, whenever I hear Barry Gardner, I, I can't stop thinking of Boris Gardner. I want to wake up with you, the reggae star of the 1980s. It's like, it's not him, it's not him. Yeah, but I'll you be... can't stop thinking about him anyway. No, but I, I, I mean, I think that this, it really it is, it talk about Groundhog Day, it's, it's just like, you know, militants, and it's just extraordinary to think it's happened again. You wouldn't think it, these things are possible, they absolutely do. It's just like mid-80s again. The, the, the Labour Party's become a kind of crazed death cult, yeah. and, and the, you know, there's a... There's a huge swathe of people out there who have nowhere to go, who are desperately looking for somewhere to put their vote. That's why they go into the Lib Dems massively. And I have to say, I'm really torn about whether, you know, they, they talk about, you know, the sort of chaos, they, whether they should be allowed to burn in order to rise. Because they, what they, they, they burn 65 points. I mean, they're not going to win. Mm. I mean, there might be some, there might be some sort of electoral... Uh, pact we can do and everything but it's with the wrong people that the party is in the grip of a cult and the, there are huge swathes of it i mean my my personal um hope for it is that some kind of uh and it sounds like i can't believe i'm saying this that just sound like a geography teacher but some sort of sensible centrist will say <laughs> this is not your party this is the party of the many and if you believe that you cannot you can all fuck off it's not about this. teacher wouldn't say fuck <laughs> It's not about this tiny cabal of, of, of obsessives, uh, sort of resting, which is what they're doing, is they deselect and they purge and they purge. They're taking over the party like a sort of terrifying alien invasion. The rest of it's the rest of it who needs they need to wake up and do something. I, you know, people talking about Keir Starmer maneuvering, I, I fucking hope he is. Yeah. Is it time someone did something? Roz, as, as Excuse me. Um, Ross, as recently as Friday, you would have thought, hey, um, you would have thought uh, that Labour was kind of on a, was kind of, you know, getting its ducks in a row and heading towards a kind of going into this general election without, you know, having jettisoned the crazy that we'd seen in the, in the, in the first part of the sheet. They've been in conversation with the Liberal Democrats. Let's talk about you know, putting together something that you genuinely appeal to a large number of people than the, than, the, than the Corbyn enthusiasts. And then a kind of hit is launched against Tom Watson and leadership uh, talk surfaces again. It's like self-sabotage seems to have kicked in. Well, it's party conference, isn't it? But <laughs> that's what party conference does. But, but I, think, I think, in, in fact, it was... Uh, 
Joe Swinson and the Lib Dems. Uh, Joe Swinson coming out so definitely in favour of remote. Uh, remote. <laughs> 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 yeah, remote. Revoke. Um, <laughs> that um, that uh, made them feel, yeah, we know who the, the, the enemy is, and, and, and particularly the conference, because Labour Party delegates tend to really, really, really hate Lib Dems. And um, I think that they decided they wanted to put clear red water between <laughs> themselves um, and the Lib Dems, and it seemed like the right time to do that. Let's just talk quickly about that revoke position, because the first thing anybody said about it was, this is undemocratic, this is undemocratic. Mm -hmm. But of course, if they were in a position to enact it, it would, by definition, be democratic, because they would have some kind of a mandate. Do you think it's good politics? Um, yes, in a way, because I think it, it, it's, it's effective, because I think, basically, everyone who was going to vote for the Lib Dems anyway wanted, in their heart of hearts, to revoke. Um, they... Uh, support a people's vote because it's said so often that it would be undemocratic to simply reverse the result of the referendum without a further vote. And so that's fundamentally why the uh, anti-Brexit movement has coalesced so much around um, a people's vote. But I think as the version of Brexit that we're going to get looks, or that we're probably going to get, looks so extreme, revoke becomes a lot more attractive mm. in, in comparison. And it also, and it has the advantage as well, it just makes it, makes it, it go away for a lot of people. Because a lot of people, yeah. not us, not us, but a lot of people are seriously bored by Brexit. I'm seriously bored. I'm also Hands <laughs> up if you are both bored of Brexit and obsessed I by it. There's quite a lot of people out there. It's like a well, help, help, help. I haven't yet reached that stage, but sometimes I, I, I get towards it and then I have to go away and do something else that's not Brexit. But because of course my day job is predominantly Brexit. But um, most people are really bored of Brexit and they want it to go away and they want to focus on other stuff that they personally find a lot more engaging and interesting, um, like the NHS, like green issues and so on. And it has that simplistic appeal, and that's why I think she went for it. That's oh, why this, when this podcast eventually goes, it'll be like Taggart. You have to. <laughs> we, you want to keep Romaniacs going, but there's nothing. To, we're going to have to do something else. Solve crimes or something. Like that. It's going to be like it's going to be like, going to be like the final season of Blake Seven. I didn't like to say it. Well, well, but I can see it was written all over your face. <laughs> That's quite a good segue to move on to our first round of Leave or Remain. Uh, where we, the panel, are going to uh, say, you know, for a list of famous names and say, who's leave, who's remain, who's super hard, triple Brexit lover. Mark Gators, we're going to start with you, and your category, you will be amazed to hear, is characters from Doctor Who. <laughs> so, who'd be leave, who'd be remain, and who's standing for the Brexit party for Scarrow North? <laughs> first person, the first Doctor, as played by William Hartnell, leave or remain? Well, all the Doctors are different aspects of the same personality. I can tell you that all the Doctors would remain. <laughs> really? Okay. So not on Gallifrey. <laughs> Gallifrey itself is, is, is actually quite Brexity, isn't it? Because they've got a wall. Galexit. Galexit. They've got a wall. They're very kind of monocultural. Yeah. And uh, they think they're better than everybody else. 
So yeah. quite practicing. <laughs> yeah, but he's broken away from them. He has broken away so from them. So he's quite remaining. She. He's very. Yeah. S stroke he. He is yes. And a citizen of the universe. Yeah. And a gentleman's throat lady to boot. Uh, okay, moving on. The master in numerous variants. Leave or remain? Too trivial to concern himself with. Oh. <laughs> Peoples of the universe, your attention, please. <laughs> okay. Rose Tyler's mum, Jackie. Well, it would be very easy to, to uh, categorise her as an obvious leaver, but I, in a sort of gym, I was there for the first half, in a gym royal way, I think you'd be dicing with death there. I think yeah. she's probably a probably a sceptical remainder. Sceptical remainder. She's actually, she is quite sensible, isn't she, Jackie? Yeah. And she's very family. She's it's very like, it's so long ago, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 ten years ago. But yeah, you, you did see a lot of videos around the time of the boat of, of, of people going, I'll do anything for my kids, anything for my kids. Which way did you vote? I voted to leave the European Union. And the kids go, please, please don't vote for it. Yeah. Anything for my kids. Apart from what they're Okay, the obvious one, we've got to ask this one. Davros, creator of the Daleks. Leave or remain? Uh, well, obviously, uh, leave <laughs> in order to amass uh, a multi-galactic army to destroy everything. Yeah. So that's pretty any way you can do it. If you, have, you don't leave the house, then you've got to... <laughs> yeah, you can't do it. You know? Well, it's, it's... well it's, you know, famously, the doctor says if you had a little, a little um, file of bacillus which would destroy all life, and you, with a tiny pressure of your thumb would do it. Yes, I would do it. So he would yeah. definitely do it. Such a power would set me among the gods. Because it's an insane decision, he would do it. Yes. So you're basically saying he's David Cameron. <laughs> Destroyed yes. everything. With pig fucking mass by John Friedlander. <laughs> That's so niche, I can't believe I just said it. There you go. That's gone real deep. <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh, your grandson, Brigadier Alistair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart of Unit, leave or remain? Oh, he looks like a lever, definitely a Remainer. Although the United he's Nations. A, he's, a, he's a decent man. He's a decent man. And I wish he was in charge. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be great, yeah. <laughs> and finally, the Zygons, shapeshifters. Coming over here, taking our bodies. <laughs> leave or remain? Leave, remain, leave, remain, leave, remain, leave, remain. Well, leave, remain. They did come here to work. Yeah. Well, the Zygon shops are nice. Ingrid's a Zygon, isn't she? E Ingrid is a Zygon. We've yeah, yeah, yeah. yet to kind of get yeah. it to, you know, yeah. press up to this. They'd leave and remain depending on what their body was doing at the time. There you go. I wish we could all do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well. <laughs> and we got through that without mentioning the Curse of Peladon from 1973, which is an allegory to Britain joining the common market, didn't we? Well, I did uh, my last Doctor Who, which was uh, about the ice warriors on Mars. Uh, uh, there was, a, there was a, a direct reference, which unfortunately was cut. Uh, where they, they reach out uh, and get in touch with Alpha Centauri, played by Yuzan Churchman, uh, same actresses in 1972. And uh, the doctor says, oh, we think, you know, it's a bit bumpy at first, but they join the Galactic Federation and everything works out. But then when uh, Peladon uh, votes to leave, well, and it, and it was a little, a little Brexit joke. It was taken out by the Brexit yeah. Broadcasting Corp. <laughs> Moving on, let's get on the let's get on the on the up. Let's uh, let's talk about heroes. Uh, Romaniacs, as you know, can sometimes be a bit of a downer with dismal yeah. news and a new low every week. But the Brexit experience has brought out the best in some people. That's Hero not our fault. It's not our fault. To be fair, we don't make reality. Um, there has produced some heroes though. People who come to the fore may well play a role in fixing the future. Often they're outsiders and often from the place you least expect. 
So we asked the panel each to choose two Brexit heroes, one from inside politics, somebody who's risen to the occasion and surprised us, and somebody from outside politics, the arts or music, as Joe or Josephine Public. Ross Taylor, I'm going to start with you. Who's your political Brexit hero and why? Well, it's Donald Tusk, I'm afraid. I'm sorry to be predictable. But, um, and of course, he's really moved off the Brexit scene now because all the big jobs in Brussels have, have shifted onwards in the next phase. But I like, yeah, and of course, you know, it, 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 it was um, Alex, of course, who immortalised his contribution to Brexit <laughs> yes. with the, with the, with the uh, Donald Tusk erotica. But we won't get into that <laughs> right now. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just talk about how Donald has been endlessly patient with Britain and has said, not just, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to put up with all your shit forever, but, you know, you can always come back. We still hope you will change your mind. And I just find that very admirable. Um, admittedly, he was only operating during phase one of Brexit, you know, the, the less mad Theresa May era. Um, so it was easier for him to do that, and it would be interesting to see how he now would deal with Boris Johnson. But I, I, I have to admire the man for his infinite patience and uh, clear, you know, just, just, just tolerance of our rubbish. <laughs> He's great, isn't he? Yeah. Um, who is your hero from outside of politics? The world of Brexit. Oh, that's a bit of a feel. It's, it's actually Stuart Lee. And it's weird because on the, on the door of the dressing room here, there's a picture of Stuart Lee, and I have no idea why. Um, there, there just is one. Um, so All of his stuff was in the dressing room when we came He's in. in there. It's like his guitar and all kinds of bits. Oh, my God. It was hiding in the loom. Stuart Lee does, does these amazing columns in the, in the Guardian Observer. I'm not sure which. He does these, these extraordinary columns, and they have this kind of quite quite banal headline that's just your standard Brexit headline about what's been happening. And then gradually you start reading the piece and it gets, it's a little bit weird, and then it gets progressively more insane. And you realise at the end that he's just gone off on one completely. And most comics, I think, have really struggled with Brexit because the basic, I don't know, most comedians, I think, they take what is not necessarily a very amusing political situation and they make it amusing. And Brexit is to start with insane, and, and, and there's just rubbish. There's just insane there's things. There's nowhere to go. Yeah, exactly. There's insane things happening all the time. So where do you go with that exactly? Where do you go with it? But he he had the sense to realise that it was insane. So you could only make it more insane, and that's um, why I why I admire him. And for me, he's just he's uh, got a new book out. I think of all his columns, which 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 is fantastic. And it, 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 because, and at the end of his columns in The Guardian, people always write things like, it's a shame that The Guardian isn't taking Brexit and the problems more seriously. <laughs> Can we have some serious analysis, please? And I just think, fuck's sake. Have <laughs> you seen The Guardian? <laughs> Every day of my life, I deal with serious Brexit analysis. And I'm so grateful for Stuart Lee, Stuart Lee for being completely insane about Brexit. <laughs> I, I, can, I can get behind that. Yeah. Relax. So. Mark Gatiss, who's your political hero? can't believe I'm going to say this. It's John Major. I can totally believe you say that. No, I, when I was uh, 15, I threw eggs at Michael Heseltine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Were they boiled? Yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> hard And, you know, the idea of, of sort of lining up... But this is what Ros was saying, you know, not everything normal is gone. You can't, you can't satirise anything where there's no normal. 
You can't enjoy, I find, as a political junkie, I can't enjoy it. I remember when Thatcher fell and Alan Bennett famously said it was very 18th century. There was something grand about it because it was rare. Tectonic plates move, this, she'd been there for 11 and a half years. Something it was like, oh God, this every minute of the day. There's too much news. Everything's extraordinary. Uh, and so, you know, Boris Johnson's just something that would have brought down a prime minister five years ago. People shrug it off just like Trump. So without normality, uh, it's very hard to, to feel sort of like you're engaged, really. And so John Major, who, you know, by common consent, was, this, was the most boring. You know, Arthur Pewty made into prime minister with his mis mysterious upper top lip. I remember John, David Baddiel saying, has he got a moustache or what? Yeah. And no one knew this strange grey shadow. He astonishing philtrum. Yes. An astonishing philtrum. And obviously, you know, the spitting image thing and, and the underpants cartoon and Steve Bell cartoon. But now he's a reasonable man in, in, in an ocean of mendacity. He's not just a reasonable man, he's incredibly committed to preserving our fragile democracy. And that makes me, it moves me to tears. Yeah. He's an amazing man. He's, he's done the thing that, that uh, nobody else has done. He's, you know, he's, he's actually pointing a finger at another prime minister. He's broken the, the, the club code and said, no, you can't do this. And I mean, God, all power to his elbow. Yeah, he's an honourable man. Yeah. In a state of whatever dishonourableness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you hear it from outside of politics. This is difficult. I was going to say Basil Brush just for the hell of it. <laughs> uh, I'd like to nominate the late Anthony Howard. Okay. Uh, who is my, my all-time favourite political commentator. I'm, I'm nominating him, the shade of him, because I miss him very much. Right. Uh, and I used to... He was like the voice of God. Whenever he showed up, you go, oh, it's Tony Howard. Good, good. I'll understand this now. He was so wise and he'd seen it all. And I'd like that space to be filled by someone who isn't laughing up their sleeve like Norman Smith or uh, most of the political commentators. I just can't, I can't bear them. I don't trust them the way I did John Cole or Tony Howard. And, I, and so I would like that space to be occupied. That's what, I, that's what I'm hoping, is that there'll be someone, John Pina, I think is good, but yeah. you know, it's, it's very hard to, to actually watch it. And as I said, get some sort of rudder into some kind of normality where you go, I trust you, you know, and now we've had Humphreys with his unbelievable um, sort of uh, tearful farewell, and then he immediately sells his memoirs to the mail and slags everything off, and it's just admitted today he didn't do any fucking research. <laughs> and we've had to put him with him for Yeah, we really years. needed to read that. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, and then again, yeah, he was, I mean, he was, he was a very brave reporter, and he was a, he was a really big, real BBC presence, but he's become... You know, like uh, like uh, the Emperor Claudius uh, became King Log, but without without the desire to bring down the empire, he yeah. just becomes one of those people who just stays put and just gripes and moans, and and so you lose all respect for them as having any kind of uh, uh, sort of nonpartisan um, attitude. So it's a strange answer, but that's that's what it's I a, miss. We, yeah, we, we haven't had a ghost yet. Why not? <laughs> uh, Alex, it's your turn. Your political hero from the era of Brexit. Okay, so I'm going to go collectively for the ERG, the European <laughs> Research Group. You don't lie. I understood the question. No, I understood the question perfectly. And let me tell you, if these loons had not overreached and tried to go for a super hard Brexit, if some kind of sanity had prevailed, we'd be out by now. It is entirely... 
because they refuse to vote for their prime minister's deal that we're getting another shot at it. And, and I, get, I get, not annoyed, but, but a little bit perplexed when people um, feel hopeless and they think there's no way we can win this, because actually, in fact, we are winning this. Um, because three years ago, after the vote, like I said, if we'd gone for some kind of softish Norway-Switzerland-type deal, we'd be out by now. We were meant to be out on the 31st of March, and we're not. We're still talking about it seven months later. Um, in 2017, the parties went into the election, the two major ones promising to deliver Brexit, and the Liberal Democrats saying they wanted a second referendum. And now we're heading into the next election with one of the major two parties promising a second referendum and the Liberal Democrats on the platform to revoke. So, in fact, it is moving our way. I know it's difficult to see and it's difficult to sustain the energy that it takes to be fighting this Medusa-like creature the whole time, but we are winning. We are winning. Yeah. And, and we have no transfer to thank for it, which, yeah. which I think is delicious. It's delicious. When, when it's all over, I want to go up to him and say, thank you, Mark. Without you, we couldn't have destroyed Brexit. And you're, you're here over outside politics just briefly, because we are, we are running government. OK, I'm going to go for Gary Lineker, because, because it's not just what he says, because I think a lot of, a lot of celebrities have come out and said very sensible things. But I think the, the delight of the audience to which he's saying it, you know, these people who follow him for football and because he's an England hero, and, you know, and, and the Brexit segment among that, I think it makes their head explode, like, <laughs> like the aliens in Mars Attacks when they hear, when they hear Indian love call, you know. It, to have their hero, because they can't. What, what can they say to him? You're not English, you're not patriotic, you don't care about your country. I mean, you know, this is someone they've idolised, and so it causes real cognitive dissonance. And you can kind of see it in their replies. They, they, they sort of malfunction. It's, it's brilliant, it's brilliant. Absolutely my heroes, in, uh, my two heroes, very, very quickly. Uh, the political hero is Anna Subri. Not everybody's cup of tea, abrasive angry, really winds people up, but the bravery is there. And I think she's like the red shirt in Star Trek. First to the door, gets shot. The, you know, the main cast uh, don't get to go through the door. <laughs> I admire that. I know that the, the, the outriders look a mock chuck. Ensign Subri, you're with me. Ensign Subri, yeah. <laughs> Dying a heroic death. But, but I also really admire the kind of, you know, where she is now, she's got one woman a party. And I would like, I would like to write a kind of, uh, you know, some kind of, a, a film to be made in 1955 called The Lonely Passion of Anna Subri. She's there, she's on her own, and I admire that. I think that's admirable. And the non-political heroes, led by donkeys, obviously, who uh, yeah. yeah. everything to my good people. Half-life satire on this, they are the best Brexit satire, proper satire that punches up and it exposes hypocrisy, and it's fueled by righteousness and also fueled by money, so give them some money. Um, we are overrunning very, very badly here, but we're going to quickly do leave or remain, then have a quick interval, and then we'll do part two in a, uh, an economic fashion.
Um, <laughs> Ros, it's your turn. Your category is winners from the BBC's Greatest Britain's poll, which was back in 2002, so there's a cordon sanitaire around this. None of these people were involved in Brexit, and I've left out some of the obvious ones. Who's leave? Who's remain? Who thinks we should reinvade France? Um, <laughs> ready? William Shakespeare, leave or remain? Uh, remain, because he knew the dangers of invading France and, uh, you know, yeah. the problems of, you get when you, when you start uh, uh, declaring war on your neighbours. Yes, and also the man who basically invented empathy, therefore, yeah. um, Diana, Princess of Wales and Hearts. <laughs> this was a tough one because, um, you know, instinctively I think she would be leave, but, uh, but then, um, I, I, I think, yeah, ultimately soft Brexit. Um, she'd want to stay in the uh, single market customs union. She, she'd just want to bring us all together fundamentally uh, and, 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 and heal wounds, wouldn't she? She wouldn't would, she? on a yacht. Yeah. On a yacht. Very much valued freedom of movement. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, well uh, that didn't turn out Except well. through Parisian tunnel. Yeah. <laughs> too oh, soon? come on, that's <laughs> it's definitely not too soon. Oh. Okay. Not nice. Too soon, still. Ross. Guy Fawkes would be arsonist leave or remain? Totally leave. Totally leave. No deal. So WTO. Leave Let's go, WTO. Leave Britain and rejoin Roman Catholic hegemony. Whatever. Yeah. No deal, destroy it. Blow it all up. Okay. Uh, Boudicca, ancient queen of the Britons, or queen of the ancient Britons. She didn't get to be ancient herself, did she? Queen of the ancient Britons. She'd be leave, I think, because, you know, obviously England didn't exist as such back then. Um, she was uh, only a, I said I a tribe, or I don't know how you pronounce that properly. But anyway, it was a tribe that was basically centred around East Anglia. And that's a pretty leavey area. <laughs> so I'm thinking that despite being Celtic, which would imply a, maybe a bit of... Yeah, no, she, she'd, she'd still be pretty leave. And she's obviously anti-Roman, so... Yeah. There's that too. Yeah, belt up Rome. Uh, Robert Bateman Powell, founder of the Scouts. Well, basically, he'd be going for a really, really long transitional period. He'd be okay with leaving because it would present a challenge that he would relish in a kind of be prepared way. But he would have an incredibly long transitional period, probably even longer than the one Boris Johnson wants, about six, seven years, maybe even longer. But he would. He was into being prepared. Yeah, 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 so, but that's how long it takes to yeah, get prepared. There will be a badge of some, of some sort. And finally, at number one, famous Boris Johnson impersonator, Sir Winston Churchill. Leave or remain? Totally remain. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. The man who invented Europe. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't think he invented Europe. <laughs> we'll talk about this later on. In the green room. We'll talk about it later. Let's break for a pint and some lovely Romaniacs merchandise in the foyer, which Martin and Nat will be selling if you want a nice t shirt. We'll be back in 10, 15 minutes. Thank you. See you soon. Down to the hardcore now, aren't we? Right. Uh, part two. We're going to start again with another round of Leave or Remain, and it's Alex's turn. Alex is going to tell us who's Remain, who's Leave, and whose turn is it to be leader of UKIP this week. <laughs> Alex, your category is characters from myth and legend. Number one, Thor, Norse god of thunder. 
It's hammer time. Uh, Remainer. Yeah? Why yeah. Not? He's hot. <laughs> Any other reasons apart from no, rippling abs? He's hot. Okay. Yeah, Remainer. Moving on. I could never date a Brexiter, so he's Remainer. Okay. Hercules, son of Zeus and Hera. Ooh. Um, um, Remainer, I reckon. I mean, the, the Hydra is a is a sort of mythical representation of Nigel Farage, where you cut his head off and two pop out, you know, and you kick and then it's Brexit party and EDL and yeah, yeah so Remainer, I reckon. He's also a big fan of Labour. He did 12. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> true. Yeah. That's true. But he did destroy himself after he was driven mad by centaur's blood. Yeah. Perhaps a little bit slightly. Well, Germanly even there. Maybe. Auto-destruction. Yeah. Robin Hood, stole from the rich, give to the poor. Ooh, uh, Lexeter, I think, okay. just wants to smash the establishment. Yeah, um, yeah. so, yeah. Very concerned about the culture. Actually, people killing forest. people and stealing stuff to redistribute it is not really a very central position. <laughs> Quite Lexeter. Uh, Bacchus, a.k.a. Dionysus, god of wine and winemaking. Okay, um... Uh, Half man, half goat, there's a clue. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, drunk, obnoxious, a history of violence, history of sexual assault, I'd say Brexit. Yeah. Are you going so far as to say yeah, he's yeah. the Prime Minister? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Mark Francois. Is that, I, don't think, I don't think Mark Francois is. There's not enough jokes going on there. Uh, Odysseus. Um... He, he definitely started as a Brexiter, you know, a group of lads, well, we won the war. Um, <laughs> uh, but then, you know, some of them died and uh, s some of them um, had some lotus fruit and they forgot everything. They were like, oh, we never promised you a deal. <laughs> I, I don't remember saying it would be easy. Um, and, and then the remaining ones were turned into pigs. So definitely started as a Brexiter, but I think he grew through his journey. So he's a Remainer now. Remainer now! Yes. We love Remainer now. Yes. We yes. like Remainer now. Yes. Also, Odysseus did wander around for ten years on a quest where he'd sort of forgotten what the point of the quest was, and so that's quite yeah. city. But you have to wonder that that plan actually fucking worked. You know, the wooden horse thing. It, you, know, you know more about these things than I do. Yeah, yeah. it was like you, you needed quite a dumb sort of back-of-house <laughs> night guy to be there to go, what a lovely horse, I'll sign for it. So, <laughs> you were saying that in his mind he held all the cards. Yes. <laughs> and that they'd be a pushover. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Finally, uh, Persephone, Queen of the Underworld. Um, Lever, I think, um, um, she, she was tricked into becoming Queen of the Dead in exchange for six pomegranate seeds. She's Theresa May. She's tricked into becoming Queen of the Dead. It seems a pretty bad deal. It's a very, very bad yeah. deal. And, and, and by doing that, she brought winter across the whole land. So, yeah. So Teresa, she really Teresa, is Theresa May. Exactly, <laughs> Theresa May. Stephanie. Theresa May, Queen of the Underworld. Queen of the Underworld. <laughs> Alexandrev, thank you very much. <laughs> Fun and education. <laughs> so, 
Um, finally, for the last part of the show, we want to focus on the future, the future of British identity. We did a little bit of this in the, in the, in the, in the first show. Brexit has changed Britain, but it's also changed British people. Back in 2015, very few people classed themselves as pro or anti the EU. Now, Remain versus Labour is possibly the most, most salient way to describe people. Back in 2011, an Ipsos Mori poll rated EU membership as only 21st in people's list of priorities with the economy top, and now we think about nothing else apart from membership of the EU. One thing that Brexit has produced, though, is Britain's biggest and most engaged pro-European movement, that's us. Uh, it can bring a million people onto the streets of London, and that's not going to go away no matter what happens. So what is going to happen to us, the Remainer bloc, as we deal with either the fallout of Brexit or the fallout of Brexit not happening. Now, we asked the audience last time, did they feel British or not? I'm gonna ask Ros and Mark. Do you feel British? Do you feel more British since the Brexit experience? Do you feel something else? Do you feel English? Do you feel none of the above? Ros? Yeah, oddly enough, I feel a bit more British. Um, I, which is strange because I think Brexit's gonna lead to the breakup of the uh, UK. So it's it's strange that I should therefore feel more British, but I do. I I suppose I could feel English. I grew up quite close to the Welsh border, and everyone you know was was very def definitely not Welsh, and therefore English because of that. It was one of the strange kind of border mentality. But um, I don't know. I I mean I'm it's it's a cliche. It's obvious, but I'm, I'm I I have always felt very European. I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> is it okay to say that now still? I think it's it's even it's, 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 it's even better. Yeah. Especially yeah. amongst yeah. friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I I do. I I've always felt quite European, and uh, partly you know I was did Erasmus as a student, so I'm <laughs> sort of one hundred percent. Did you just Sharon Stone the audience? Sorry. <laughs> 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 I can't help it when I talk about Europe. Just, <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what I do. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to give up on that European identity just yet. But, uh, but the fact you're apologising for it is like the British, Britishest thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I feel European. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're from, you're from the North East, which is often seen as Brexit Central in the kind of very crude sort of, you know, the north and the places where the factories used to be, there's yeah. the south where we're all where are you from? eating truffles. I'm from near Darlington. Do they do palmers there? You know, <laughs> like the flattened chicken that has pizza toppings. <laughs> I hope you're back since 1963. This is a terrible... <laughs> <laughs> I've just done a very different podcast. It's not entirely relevant to <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no idea. Okay, so, I mean, did, you know... Has the experience made you feel, made you look again at what is British? Just, am I a British person? What am I? What are you well, yeah, very much, yeah. I, I feel so British that I'm taking Irish citizenship. Go <laughs> <laughs> so on, suckers! <laughs> or, or the Ark, as I like to call it. Oh, right, yes. Um, yeah, that's what we're doing. Mm. Uh, no, I mean, it makes you feel very much uh, to sort of, you know, examine the whole thing and what it means. and what it makes you ashamed of. I mean, I'm ashamed to be British, and everywhere you go and you meet people, they look at you with, like, as if you were some fond idiot. Because it's just, it's just it's so irrational. But it also, it gets to the root, I think I said this last time, I was on there, it gets to the roots of what it, to me, what it means, and all the things that we used to sort of, I certainly used to sort of rather be fond of, the kind of 
wilder shores of British eccentricity have become sinister. You know, yeah. there's a Matthew Sweet wrote a wonderful thing recently about how Dad's army has been sort of uh, seconded into a kind of, it's, it's all this sort of black propaganda, mm. weaponizing of nostalgia. And, and there are so many little things that people, Bernard Falk used to make documentaries about at BBC Two or Nationwide, about Morris dancing and things, which now just look, it just looks like we are what we are, which is a, a, um, we have arrested development as a country, and we need to just grow up. Uh, forgive me if I've said this last time, but the, I feel strongly now that with Parliament uh, being in the state it is, they, we should leave that building, and we should preserve it, but we should reopen it as a museum, and then we should build, I, I never thought I'd think like this, but I absolutely do, we should build a new one and go, we are not children anymore. We should, we should do it in the round, and we should talk to each other and try and get past adversarial politics. And electronic votes, yes. for God's sake. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's great. Uh, that's, 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 that's what we... We've made a joke about it for centuries because we've always had a very um, well-earned reputation for basic decency and fairness, and it's all gone. It's been blown away. We are revealed to be what we are, which is petty little Englanders, and we need to grow up. That's why. There's a, there's a thing that's just preyed on my mind since the beginning of this whole episode. Not this episode, this whole Brexit episode. The idea that literally every other country in Europe has had a year zero. Either they were conquered by the Nazis, or they were the Nazis, and they blew up their own country. They had, they disappeared behind the Iron Curtain. They had to deal with being defeated in the war and rebuilding their republics. They had fascism, totalitarianism, economic collapse, everything. Everybody blows. They're the only ones that didn't have an hour of racket, reckoning where you had to sit down and look at yourself and go, right, who do we want to be? Here's our, here are our failings that we have to accept. Because we've, in this country, we just wave them away, don't we? You say, oh, no, we're... And Fintan O'Toole writes about this a lot, British exceptionalism, which is really, of course, English exceptionalism. Yes. Is that what's happened I to I think that's now? the root of it. Yes, yeah, so that makes perfect sense. And we, this is our hour of reckoning, isn't it? It's, and... and it's fueled by um, it's fueled by a generation without a war who now think by watching the Great Escape at Christ on Christmas Day they have fought in the war <laughs> and, and that they are capable of, of of making these life or death decisions about the future from a very comfortable perspective. As you said, it's like my life is comfortable and therefore there must be something wrong. I've got to lash out, and that's what we're doing. And it is enticing, so much bound up in that sort of exceptionalism, which, again, we used to be a joke. It used to be the sort of thing that was on the sports pages when, when England managed yeah. to beat Germany. surrender and all that. All that stuff. Yeah. But it's years and years and years, mostly Johnson, drip-feeding a jokey thing into a national policy, which becomes a national act of self-harm. Yeah. So I used to be quite proud of being being British to the extent that I invented Britpop, for instance. Um, which would never happen without me. Um, but never particularly interested in Englishness. It was like Britain, and, and I'm from the Northwest, and Liverpool has its own, its own thing. But the, the things that have gone in the past few years have made me so actively disgusted about what we are told is, is Britishness, this pugnacity and sort of like gratuitous ignorance. And I had to keep reminding myself, no, that's not what it is. That wasn't the original Bill of Fare. The original Bill of Fare of British values was the tolerance and decency and good humour and lack of extremity and, you know, lack of, not lack of extremities, lack of extremism. We all got fingers and toes. Um, that kind of thing, you know, boring, these John Major's Britain yeah. was what we were supposed to be. And it's gone. 
Ross, you're waving your mic. But it was, it was, it was always seen as a strength, not having, not having to define ourselves. I remember when Gordon Brown was prime minister, and he had a bit of a drive to define what Britishness was, which, as with so many, sadly, of Gordon Brown's initiatives, didn't quite hit it off with the public. And it, it was, but it was seen at the time. People said, "Oh, it's wonderful." You know, we don't, we don't, we don't know exactly what we are, and that's. That's good, you know, it means that we're flex you know, flexible and malleable. And I think now we're seeing the result of that failure to define what we are. Um, because what we're being told by Johnson that we're something else entirely, and suddenly a lot of us don't like it. And uh, he's trying to stamp a different, a particular identity on us. And it was a real weakness, I think, and it was, I think, it was, to be fair, it's impossible almost for any prime minister to say, well, I'm going to define what, what, what it is to belong to this nation. You, you run the risk of becoming uh, a bit of a despot when you do that. But it's, it's, a, it's a failure that we've had to codify what we are, what we believe in. What are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with this? This big block of pro-European enthusiastic, engaged, people thinking oh, in a way... Christ. Huh? <laughs> At the tip of a huge iceberg. Um, you know, there's, there's something is in this country now that wasn't here before. Um, and we may discover at half past ten tomorrow that the Supreme Court has ruled one way and in quite a different country. But that block of people... And it's not just wearing the, you know, the EU berets and waving the flags and that kind of thing. It's, it, is a, it is a new... It's a new division in the country. Where... Where is that? Where can that energy go? Ireland. Apart from Ireland. <laughs> Not all of us have got an Irish grandma, Mark. We're, we're, some of us are stuck here. That Quite a lot of it that is your tragedy, you know. <laughs> so it's now the top destination for finance firms. 31 at the last count have moved to Dublin, 25 to Luxembourg, 24 to Frankfurt. So hurrah for the Brexit deal. Do we think that there is something, I mean, imagine that it may go the wrong way. We, you know, we may, you know, Brexit may well happen. We may well, the 31st of October, get this kamikaze crash into a wall. But it's not going to make the pro-European, it's not going to make the Romaniacs disappear. What can happen with that, those people? May I participate as a foreigner? You may. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we... With or without the prologue about how much I love this country and I chose it as my home, etc. Um, <laughs> you know what? Um, I, I think we have to be realistic. I think it would be a mistake to believe what the other side believed, that you can tick a box and make it all go away. Um, because this was the basis on which Brexit was sold to people, that you know, you don't, you don't have to get off your ass. You don't have to work hard. You don't have to do things to change the world you live in. You can just go in one Thursday, tick a box, and we'll change it all for you. That was the lie that was sold. And we have to fight against that. Um, and it will be generational. And it will take fucking ages. Because I think, you know, there are a lot of things I love about this country. I was so pleased when I finally got cricket. 
and snooker. You know, I used to sit there for hours just watching this thing going, what's going on? And then it wasn't a gradual thing. I sort of just got it one year by osmosis until the ashes came on. I thought, oh, uh, I think I know what's going on. This is brilliant. I'm British now. Um, but, but there is a streak of anti-intellectualism that runs in this country in a very real way. Not in a, not in a, a way of, of not liking educated people, but in a way of sort of celebrating how fucking ignorant you are. You sort of go, you know, you think people who read books are weird. What? Books? You didn't watch Strictly Come Dancing? You read a book? What sort of weirdo are you? And people express that openly. And, and you have this whole slice of society that is not interested in the arts, is not interested in literature, is not interested in education, philosophically not interested in it. They consider it like a poncy thing to do. And so the English identity, because it is primarily an English problem, atrophies, because all the things that could feed it, your brilliant literary tradition, your composers, your artists, your painters, your sculptors, all that is taken out of the equation, and so it becomes really brittle. It just becomes this, we won the Second World War thing. And when your identity is really brittle, you're really scared of other identities. That's why Scotland voted to remain, because they're quite secure about being Scottish. So they can be Scottish and something else. But a lot of English people are quite insecure about being English. So they can't be English and British and European and a Londoner and, you know, they can't contain all those things because their identity, the pillars of their identity, which are cultural, their heritage, has atrophied. It's not a coincidence that every Brexiter that sends you abuse can't spell. That's not a, it's not a, it's not a joke though either. It's not a joke, it's a failure. That's what it is, it's a failure. You know, language is really central to identity. And if you have let this stuff atrophy because education is somehow seen as a poofy thing to do, then you end up in trouble. You end up with your identity being a, a sort of hollow construct. And that's when nationalism takes hold. Sorry, that wasn't very cheerful. Was no, it's very <laughs> It's definitely, uh, it's definitely significant that the people, the people that most loudly say, we gave the world everything, we gave the world the English language, and they can't use the English language, is <laughs> significant. And you're right, it's not a joke. It, it says something really... But it's sad. It is sad. It's sad because, you know, because for 40 or 50 years, we've had an education system that has prioritised producing economic units rather than producing sophisticated people that can use their judgment because that's what suited the market. We don't need sophisticated sorry, people. Sorry, it all went a bit socialist. <laughs> so, uh, to wrap up, it's getting late and it is Monday. Uh, are, are we going to get used to thinking of ourselves as Europeans and not British at all, or not English at all? Because I, I look at the kind of bill of fare of, it, of British stuff and I find very little of it interesting now. I think there's hope now, more than there was before. I think it's concentrated mind, it's forced people to think about what Europe means to us, which wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know about you, Andrew, but I'm <laughs> very powerful now, my Irish heritage. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's a time, do the accent, it's do the accent. time of reckoning, isn't it? Because it's like, you do obviously look, you look towards the continent and think, where, what do you have more in common with? What do you want to embrace? I've said this as a joke many times, but really, London, I think, could almost be like Venice used to be in the 15th century. City state. It could be a city state. I mean, it works here, but this is where it works brilliantly. And maybe London is different and exceptional, but it, what's, dis, what's distressing is you think, look, there's a model here. This is, and we're just flushing it all down the toilet, all these facts which we never hear about. You don't hear about these things because experts aren't allowed on the TV, but you want to be hearing on the news every night, you know, financial centers are going to Ireland, they're going to Luxembourg, they're going, Frankfurt, elsewhere, and we, we're not going to be the fifth largest economy for very much longer, the way we're going. Well, we're not anyway, yeah. actually, you know, because, Six, sorry, yes. because of... It's, it's going down, really. Seven. 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 Yeah. yeah, ten. Okay. <laughs> time is time is second. Um, <clears throat> these good people have got jobs to because they're making London work. They're all Fifteenth now. Fifteenth. <laughs> um, we, should, we should wrap it up. Uh, if we're gonna Before we're twentieth. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's on a quick number of uh, audience questions here. We could do my leave or remain quickly. Want to do that? Yes. Go on then. All right. I've got that for you. Okay. Okay. So, Andrew's category is um, cartoon or comic graphic book. novel or comic book characters, whatever your pleasure is. Cartoon. In that respect. Yes. No, one of them is, is a cartoon. cartoon yes. Okay. So, the Joker. The Joker is about burning everything down and chaos. He is a chaos voter. Joe said something. The Joker is, uh, is, is, is Martin Daubney of the Brexit Party. The, 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 the Joker is... Uh, the Joker. But he has wit. The Joker does have wit. You're absolutely right. And it's, it's... The Joker, depressingly, is, is probably Reese Mark presenting himself stylishly oh, while destroying everything. Yes, um, okay. But of course, as Marvel has said of the Doctors, there are multiple aspects of the Joker. Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel in the Marvel films, female Captain Marvel right now, is part of a vast galaxy-spanning civilization. Vast, vast. So she's clearly a Romania, even though that civilization is actually a despotism run by... Well, how do you know she doesn't want to get out of it? She does, that's in the film. Spoilers. Okay. So <laughs> she, she represents the true values, so she is a Romania. Okay. Lord Snooty. Reese Mark. He is Reese Mark. Lord City is Reese Mark with his little, his little caravan of proles that he tosses a hilarious, you know, kind so of. Is that a lever or a main? Um, he is a. He's a lever because he wants to restore the 17th century. He Three. wears a top hat, so I believe he's a lever. Poison Ivy. Poison Ivy from the DC comics. She's Extinction Rebellion. She regards. Oh, I love She regards that. the whole Brexit thing. She's Greta Thunberg. She's Greta Thunberg is yeah. her alternative. Yeah, she regards the whole Brexit uh, thing as just as, as irrelevant. She regards human affairs as irrelevant. So she's yeah. an extinction rebellion. Terrific. Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown is a constantly disappointed Remainer. <laughs> Charlie Brown. Good grief, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown just just wants stability amongst his group of friends, and he honestly believes, with his true heart, that when he runs up to kick the football, that Lucy's not going to pull the football away, <laughs> and Lucy, who is a lever, pulls the football away every time. Yeah. Hashtag Jeshui Charlie Brown. Jeshui Charlie Brown. Mm -hmm. 
Dark Phoenix. Dark Phoenix from the, from the X-Men. She's a, a, a primal force of destruction. She is also a chaos voter. She is, she regards no deal as namby-pamby because, <laughs> because it contains within it the idea of a deal. Uh, she is for, um, I don't know, whatever's, whatever's beyond no deal. She's beyond no humans. She's, so uh, yeah, no deal plus. That's what she is. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you, Andrew. Thank you, Alex. And that's the end of the show. Uh, thanks to Ross and Alex, our two regulars. Ross and Alex are now addicted to the roar of the newspapers by the crowd. They're a wonderful live audience. I'm sure you agree. Thanks to the great Mark Gates, our special guest. Thank you for your Monday night. Before you go, Mark, what can you tell us about bringing illegal migrant Dracula to our shores? Oh. Uh, very little. From the new expanded Europe. <laughs> well, no, it's period, so it's from, he's, he's coming from 1897. Okay. But, you know, he's, uh, it's a uh, Brexit, I suppose, Romanian exit. <laughs> so he's, he's very keen to get out of Romania and into our world, you know. Coming over here, it'll work. Fresh Good on it. <laughs> um, and thank you to everybody for coming, obviously, thanks to the previous panel, uh, Ingrid Dorian and um, Ian and James O'Brien, first show. Have we, have we got time for a question or two? Man at the back? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nat's got the microphone. Nat, you've got the microphone. Hands up for some questions for the audience. Nat, you've got the microphone. There you go. One here. Is it Monique? It is. <laughs> Famous Monique. Famous from Twitter and things. Monique goes, your question, please. Um, yeah, I take your point that uh, we're kind of winning and, you know, the Lib Dem revoke and position all don't, the rest of it. Don't put a butt at the end of that. <laughs> no, <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> just don't do it. I just want to ask you, why have the opinion polls not shifted and aren't you actually really terrified of a referendum? Because do you think we'd win it? Okay, the opinion polls have shifted and they have shifted consistently in one direction. I fully accept they haven't shifted as much as they should have. You know, I, I, I've had people today saying Thomas Cook is nothing to do with Brexit. It, you know, they're in trouble because of other stuff. Yes, they're in trouble with other stuff, but they're a travel fucking company <laughs> that sells in pounds and pays in euros. And you're telling me that, you know, there's a denial out there. But what I do believe is that in the privacy of the polling booth, without people pointing the finger at them and saying, you made a stupid decision, you better undo it. I think a lot more people will do the right thing than Paul show. That's, that's, that's what I believe. I think people want it to go away now. Yeah, I think uh, most people just want it to go away. And it's a very appealing um, option to make it away. I think the thing that we need on top of that is something else. Um, we need a, a, another leader who can take on Johnson, someone yes. more convincing. I was talking about Jess Phillips earlier, that's a pipe dream, but I just, we were talking about how she would totally wipe the floor with Johnson were she to, were she, uh, were she to come to power. We need somebody with an alternative vision that is not about Brexit and say, look, this is something else that we're doing. This is 
uh, what you what you can be voting for. This is something you can believe in. You can stop obsessing about Brexit. You don't have to divide yourself into leavers and remainers anymore because that's that's not that's not the most important thing. We don't want to think that about you. We want you to engage with other things and to start caring about other policies. And we respect you enough to know that you can do that. And there has to be something else other than Brexit. We have to move on. And whoever takes us forward in the post-Johnson era, fingers crossed, is going to do that and is going to move us beyond Brexit. Although people still need to listen to Brexit podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> clearly, clearly. If there will still be a demand for a Brexit podcast. <laughs> God for that. Uh, yeah, completely. Sort of retro thing. Yeah. Remember Brexit? Amazing, wasn't it? Um, another question. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I really like the way that you described um, how uh, British identity is. I really like the way that you described how um, kind of British identity is kind of diminished. Um, and I was wondering if there is a way um, how we kind of restore that. National service. <laughs> Let's call that plan B. Um, <laughs> yes, there is a way. You fund the fuck out of education. You make higher education free. You fund the arts. You fund music. You fund architecture. You fund everything that is beautiful but not necessary. Because that is actually where a civilization's identity lies. Liberal rubbish! Fond <laughs> <laughs> on liberal rubbish, that's what we want. I stand by it. You're absolutely right, absolutely right. But yes. this, is, this is Britain. <laughs> absolutely right. My, my worry is that, as Ross said, that some, there needs to be some sort of lightning rod. Something has to happen. It might be a person, you know, if there was, you know, we're talking about King Arthur, really. <laughs> Someone arrives, you go, oh, I can believe in them. They can, and it's a sort of centrist, sensible candidate that people can flock to because our votes are floating around in, in the ether. Someone like that could be the lightning rod, but something has to change because this is not going to go away. We're talking about where, where the Romaniacs are going to go. I'm also worried about where everyone else is going to go because there's so much bile and fury. It's like a massive boil full of pus, and it's not going to be lanced anytime soon. Even if we, cra if we crash out, then they, they could at least say, we've done it. But the, but the narrative of betrayal will, will go on, I mean, because it's impossible to solve. Right? The thing is, you can't, you can't offer a compromise from a position of defeat. And this is a really important thing. It really was up to the Remainers to offer a compromise, having won, sorry, the Brexiters, to offer a compromise having won the referendum. The losing side can't go, I'll negotiate with you so we can find a way through this. It was up to them. And instead of reaching for that, they reached for the most outlandish, hardest possible Brexit there was. So what I think is that this mistake shouldn't be repeated. I think if there were a second referendum and Remain won, it would be up to Remain to reach out to the other side and say, now, let's go to a sort of Norway model. I think that would be an incredible gesture of goodwill that would really unite the country to say, we recognize that half of 
you don't want to be a fully paid up member of the EU, so we're going to find a way through it. Either negotiate more, um, you know, opt-outs and vetoes or negotiate a sort of what's been mooted for a long time, a sort of second tier membership of the European Union. But it would be, you, you need to win in order to offer the compromise. You can't offer a compromise from a losing position. We are, we are now at 11 o'clock. I think we've got time for one more. Quite a hammer up faster than anybody else. I, I have the mic. We haven't, oh, I'm sorry, okay. It's the lady there. She's sorry. had her hand up for sorry ages. About that. Can you shout it out? I can. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, you, you're talking about winners and losers, but I think the, I think the um, uh, first past the post is a, really a soil of what happened before because I think that we need policy of consensus and not the winners and losers. Did everyone hear that? We need a first past the post is the root, the root of all evil. We need a policy of consensus, not winners and losers. The panel. Ros? Yeah, first past the post basically trained people to think that their votes didn't really matter. Uh, and then they, a referendum came along when they did matter and all the votes counted. And it was a huge shock, I think, to a lot of leavers as well. But we were used to this, this crazy system where most people's votes are totally irrelevant. And that is, yeah, that, that is perhaps one of the most, one of the most toxic, toxic things about the British, Britain's lack of a constitution, that this has been allowed to go on and on and on and Though, of course, the Lib Dems tried to change it when they were in coalition, they failed. And it's incredibly, yeah, it, it, I think it, it, it immured people to think that their vote really didn't matter. And they could do whatever they wanted and whatever vote they cast was essentially a protest vote for, and it wasn't. And it was such a shock. I mean, it was a shock to Johnson and Co. the following day when they won the mm. referendum. Yeah, they it looked was... like the, the guys from the producers when, when, <laughs> when they realised, yes. you know, springtime for Hitler is a hit. That's what they looked like that morning. They just came on. <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it? Because it's a sort of, as, as difficult to, to stomach as it feels. If, if, we, if we'd had, uh, you know, uh, PR, then... There, there might well be UKIP MPs by now, and it would have been, it's like, or even, you know, BMP or whatever, but it might have actually lanced the boil because there would have been compromise. Those people would have actually been in positions of some power, and they'd have to work out deals, and it's, it's just built up into this massive protest. And parties like that f flame out when they're in power. It's happened, yeah. I mean, I'm told it's happened to Golden Dawn, but, you know, yeah. they make their entry... Or, or maybe they won't. Maybe we'll get more used to compromise and coalition governments. And it's the European yeah. model. It's what we should all be aiming for. European <laughs> stuff. It's great. Uh, okay, ladies and gentlemen, we could go on, but we shouldn't go on because you've got jobs to go to. Thank you so much for coming. For now, we've enjoyed it. Thank you to Alex Cross, Mark Davis. Thank you to. The immensely patient and hard-working staff of the Leicester Square Theatre. Thank you to Mark and Nat for doing all the merchandise. Thank you to you for coming down and for listening to the podcast. We'll be back with a podcast on Wednesday. And thanks to Andrew Harrison who puts this entire thing together.
Please write your amendments. Um, so on Wednesday's show, we'll be dealing with the Supreme Court decision. Uh, and it may be the last pub podcast we ever do. So, thank you, and we'll see you again soon. Good night. Yeah.